Welcome to the Practical Neurology podcast, the essential guide for the everyday life of all neurologists. And welcome to today's discussion of the two case reports that we've selected from the latest edition of Practical Neurology. I'm Martin Turner, a consultant neurologist in Oxford, and I'll be guiding the conversation, but uh, with Ruth and Sinew doing uh, all the hard work and I'll let them introduce themselves. So Ruth. Hi, I'm Ruth. I'm an ST5 neurology registrar working in Sussex. And I'm Sinew. I'm a neurology registrar in Oxford. Great. Thank you both. So before we present the two cases, I just want to give a reminder to our listeners. We have two podcasts linked to the latest edition of the journal, and they're already available. The editor's highlights discussion with Phil Smith and Geraint Fuller, and the editor's choice paper interview, brilliantly conducted by Amy Ross Russell. Please subscribe on your favourite platform to get notified every time we publish a new podcast. Today we've got two excellent cases among a choice of 12 in this uh, this issue. So we're going to get started with the first case. So Sinu, tell us uh, how this case presented, please. Thanks very much. So we have a very interesting case in a 27-year-old man with brainstem and cervical cord enhancing lesions. Now, I've just held back the exact title of this article as it gives away the diagnosis, just in case we have any listeners who are coming to the podcast fresh. The authors of this article were Daniel Alves de Oliveira and colleagues, and they are from the Department of Neurology in Recife, Brazil. Great, yeah. So we have a 27-year-old man who we are told works as a motorcycle driver, and he presents with a progressive right lower limb weakness over the last four years, which has affected his walking slightly. During the second year of his symptoms, he then developed right upper limb and predominantly distal weakness, which now affected his motor riding. This became worse in the months leading up to his admission, and it affected his work and activities of daily living, such as bathing and dressing. He also reported a few other symptoms, including numbness down the right side, episodic pain in the right limbs, blurred vision, dysarthria, difficulty swallowing liquids along with urinary retention, constipation, and sexual dysfunction. So quite a mixed bag of symptoms there. We're told that he was born post-term with a bit of neonatal jaundice, but otherwise had normal development. Okay, well, I mean, let's just pause there because we've got quite a long history haven't we here so that always frames things really to a a particular set of causes of things and we definitely had a very motor component initially but then there was sensory and then quite a lot of other things going on as well we've got some dysarthria and then dysphagia so yeah I mean Ruth with that sort of picture over this kind of time frame just in very broad terms what would you be sort of feeling was uh, was likely or would be the first things to rule out? So I think the first thing that came to mind when reading this was, um, is there an inflammatory demyelinating condition such as primary progressive MS? Um, just because of the time course, really, it's been evolving over at least four years and it, it sounds like multiple areas of the CNS could potentially be involved. And what about a sort of space-occupying lesion? Yeah, I think that's definitely on the differential as well. He could have a slow-growing tumour, I think it's a bit rapid for something like a, a subdural hematoma, for example. And again, I would have thought an abscess, there might be some more sort of systemic features or a more rapid time course. Yeah, I agree. There's something, I mean, I suppose we 
obviously it's difficult because we uh, we know what the final diagnosis is here, so we're not being totally unbiased. But it, it does seem a little bit long wouldn't it, for for a space occupying lesion, and there's something just be I think a bit disturbing really if that hadn't been thought of at this sort of stage. But I mean, I suppose on the face of it, um, it could be something very uh, slowly evolving. But there's quite a lot of other things going on, and once we've started to get change in voice and then leading to dysphagia as well and significant urinary retention, that places it quite significantly then into the brainstem, doesn't it? Uh, perhaps the pontine bladder centre, if not down into the cord. So uh, we're definitely dealing with, with something that looks as though it's become quite extensive. Well, what did we find on examination, uh, Sinew? Thanks. Um, I also wondered whether infections such as HIV or TB could be at play here with this so slowly progressive type um, syndrome, maybe base of skull being involved, but um, I think those were my thoughts as well. So moving on to the examination, this finds a right upper motor neuron facial palsy, right glossopharyngeal and vagus nerve involvement. There was spastic tetraparesis worse on the right side, along with weakness grade three distally. There was also hyperreflexia bilaterally, sustained clonus of the right ankle and bilateral tromnus sign. Now this is when you tap or flick the volar aspect of the middle finger, uh, i.e. not the nail side, along and see whether there's first finger and thumb flexion. So similar to Hoffman's, one might say. Yeah, have you used that before? The uh, trum, I believe it's probably trumner reflex actually, with my recalling my German. So uh, have you used that before, Sinew? To be honest, no, but I have used it since I read this article. Yeah, what about you, Ruth? Have you used that reflex? I've never done it. I've not intentionally used the reflex. I might have done it when trying to uh, do a Hoffman's and getting it wrong. Yes, that's a very good point, actually. We might have inadvertently done both. So, uh, OK, so we've got a lot of central signs, haven't we, here? And I guess there's no big surprise there. It would have been unusual if this had all uh, had peripheral uh, signs, so um, or very difficult to explain, really. So, so we've got... Um, a lot of central things going on. What relevant negatives do you think we've got? So there weren't any cerebellar dysfunction, um, although he did have a scissoring gait, which would fit with more of a pyramidal presentation rather than cerebellar, um, bearing in mind that we think brainstem is involved here. And I suppose, uh, importantly, balance was preserved despite mobility issues and Romberg sign was negative. Okay. Well, I think we've probably had the sort of examination findings we were kind of expecting from the history. And, and I always find that you should have an idea really from the history of what you're expecting, because then you know if you have something which doesn't fit really. But I think it's not really added anything that we weren't expecting to find. And it seems very reasonable, as they have done, to go straight on to, to tell us what the imaging showed, because I think that it would always be the most pertinent really in this sort of setting of a chronic condition uh, with these sort of signs. So what did the uh, imaging show for us, uh, Sinew? Yeah, so MR imaging was obtained and there were T2 flare hyperintense lesions in the periventricular white matter, basal ganglia, midbrain and medulla, as well as the upper cervical cord bilaterally. There was also GAD-enhancing lesions around the pons, so at the lower pons in junction between the brainstem and the cord. Okay, well... I mean, we would always talk to our uh, uh, radiologist about what they, they sort of feel is most likely. But um, in broad terms, take us through the differential of what these sort of multifocal white matter contrast enhancing 
lesions are, what, what would be in the frame? Yeah, so I think these MR findings are quite striking with this widespread white matter lesions, especially around the brainstem with uh, the pontine enhancement, as we discussed. And when we see this, I think inflammatory processes always come to my mind, although perhaps the timeline is quite long for this, um, although it would fit with, as Ruth said, a primary progressive multiple sclerosis. Other inflammatory lesions, such as a neuromyelitis optica spectrum disorder, would also have prominent brainstem and cord involvements. And also thinking about widespread white matter disease would be something more vascular in nature. But again, the timeline is quite quick for this. And I suppose other differentials that I would consider probably earlier on is a systemic autoimmune process or some sort of granulomatous or paraneoplastic process. And then there is well, what turned out to be the diagnosis. But I suppose one thing I would that came to my mind when I read this, I thought of a Clippers-type presentation, actually, which is this chronic lymphocytic inflammation with pontine perivascular enhancement responsive to steroids. Possibly the greatest acronym ever invented. Uh, but uh, other suggestions on a postcard, please. So, uh, well, I mean, actually, I'm interested that they didn't really mention anything neoplastic now you know the time course here is long and i and agree that the, the sort of involvement of such a widespread areas multifocal would be strange but it's enhancing so i i suppose you know I, I think i would have been asking a radiologist if lymphoma was a possibility here um so I, I yeah i mean they don't mention that and that's not the diagnosis but i think just based on the scanning one would not i don't think be able to immediately say it wasn't neoplastic but i guess the there's not a lot of mass effect, particularly in the uh, the cord, uh, and, and it certainly fits best with something inflammatory. I think paraneoplastic disorders where they're based on sort of imaging changes are pretty unusual, actually, and I, I have to be struggling to, to think of a common paraneoplastic disorder, really, that would affect the cord quite so much. But, uh, yeah, so we're left with something inflammatory, uh, again, they haven't mentioned much about infection, but long-time course, systemically, with that amount of involvement, um, it seems a little bit well for an infection. So we're into the sort of rare inflammatory conditions. Now, one thing they haven't mentioned at this stage, which I suppose I thought of when I saw the imaging initially, was something like Bichette's. So, Ruth, um, any thoughts on whether that's likely or unlikely? Well, we're not told about any systemic features that would fit with that so um ulceration orogenital ulceration for example but i suppose depending on the location of the lesions it can present with kind of a wide range of neurological symptoms and i know that amy's podcast this month is actually an interview with desmond kidd about beshet's disease beshet's i should say pronunciation i think it's mentioned in that so um i think it, it could potentially fit from what i understand yeah well that that's very timely, isn't it? So I urge people to uh, listen to that uh, podcast and, uh, and and learn a bit more about that condition. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I suppose the multifocal nature might be uh, a little bit unusual. And again, perhaps um, that uh, there'll be some more information uh, from that podcast. But where did they go next, uh, Sinew, in the investigation? Yeah, so I think certainly they probably had a lot of this on their mind because they perform further investigations looking for more systemic involvement. So apparently a CT chest was obtained. He had a rheumatological evaluation and also an ophthalmological 
examination, which were all normal. And they felt that there was actually no evidence of a systemic or autoimmune process at that point. And they re-reviewed the neuroimaging. And I, again, encourage our listeners to go and have a look because we can't really do it justice by describing it. But they felt that there was a symmetrical appearance on the imaging and suspected a genetic leukodystrophy. So a leukodystrophy and genetic leukoencephalopathy panel was, a gene panel was performed, which then confirmed a probable pathogenic variant of the GFAP gene mutation consistent with Alexander's disease. Okay, well, yeah, I think that, that uh, was a little bit uh, unexpected, I think, from this particular appearance. It's not a condition I've seen many cases of. And the ones I have, I think we mentioned when we were talking about Mollerase triangle last time, we certainly think of it when we see people with progressive bulbar syndrome with sort of atrophy more in the uh, in the medulla region. But uh, yes, I've not, not particularly filed it in my own mind under these sort of multifocal white matter changes uh, like this. So that was a bit of a surprise. Now, Dave said that uh, what what's the nature of the um, uh, variant that they described? Was it a, a sort of definite one or was it a, a probable uh, variant, pathological variant? Yeah, it was described as a probable pathological variant. Yeah, and, and you know, that's a complex area really and um, there are a number of ways uh, that genetics experts can can obtain the likelihood of a, a variant um, uh, being pathological and I think... Uh, it does seem that there's uh, evidence in this case based on the word use of the word probable. So they go on to describe a little bit about adult presentations of Alexander disease. So tell us uh, what are sort of typical cases and, uh, and other features in you. Thanks. So Alexander's disease is a rare autosomal dominant leukodystrophy. However, from what I understand, most of the time the mutations are actually de novo. And there is a mutation in the GFAP gene, which encodes for glial fibrillary acidic protein. And this essentially is a structural component for astrocytes. And this disease process leads to eosinophilic astrocytic cytoplasmic inclusions that form elongated rods, commonly known as Rosenthal rods. And you're quite right that there are different variations. Um, there are infantile cases, juvenile cases, and adult cases. Uh, and this is quite interesting because they present perhaps slightly differently. Adult Alexander's disease presents with this slowly progressive bulbar dysfunction, as mentioned, pyramidal signs, ataxia, and palatal tremor, as well as sleep, urinary, and autonomic abnormalities. And cognition is usually preserved. I think the ataxia and palatal tremor are usually clues for this disease. And this is quite interesting because on our last podcast, we discussed how palatal tremor arises in the context of a lesion in Mollerat's triangle. So the red nucleus, dentate nucleus, and inferior olivary nucleus. And another point that they made is that contrast enhancement usually is actually seen with inflammatory processes rather than these genetic uh, leukodystrophies. But in Alexander's disease, it is quite well documented, especially when involving the brainstem, medulla, and cord. And so I guess uh, the other thing that I'll just highlight is there is a common um, sign to look for on the MRI. So there's commonly atrophy of the medulla and upper cord, which leads to this tadpole sign as the pons is relatively well preserved in volume, i.e. that will form the head of the tadpole. 
Yeah, and this is a difficult case, isn't it? Because they don't have the tadpole sign. Uh, they have an unusual amount of white matter change. So it, I think it's fair to say it is being led by the genetic finding. Was there any wider family history identified? I don't believe so, no. So perhaps this was a de novo mutation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and they go on to talk a little bit more about other uh, leukodystrophies, don't they? And there, there is an, actually an excellent uh, review. I think Jeremy Chataway was the lead author on that in our sister journal, JNNP, back in 2019. And actually a, a, a good white matter uh, diagnostic review in uh, practical neurology a couple of years ago as well. Uh, I think again from the Queen Square group. Um, were there any other insights that um, they provided around uh, leukodystrophies that might look the same? Yeah, so they considered two other important leukodystrophies, um, especially in the context of this contrast enhancement. I think contrast enhancement appears to be a bit of a, a key point in their workup. And the first is X-linked adrenoleukodystrophy, and the second is leukoencephalopathy with calcification in cysts, also known as Labrin syndrome. And I, and I think I probably won't go through both of them in detail, but X-linked adrenoleukodystrophy is one that I have come across a few times, and it's caused by a mutation in the ABCD1 gene, which encodes for a peroxisomal membrane-transported transporter, and dysfunction in this transporter results in increased levels of very long-chain fatty acids. So you can test for this in serum samples, or you can go straight for the genetic tests. And this is, again, another interesting condition which can present with an Addison's-like disease or adrenomyeloneuropathy, so with a peripheral neuropathy component, as well as a more pure cerebral form. And so uh, I think this was a very interesting case. Uh, I think, as you said, a lot of it was guided by the genetic test in the end, but it gave, uh, gave me a lot to think about, certainly. Yeah, Ruth, did you have any other thoughts on this? I think it mentioned in the article that oligoclonal bands can occur in 11% of people with leukodystrophy. And I just wondered whether one of the reasons they might have suspected this wasn't primary progressive MS was they might have done a lumbar puncture and the oligoclonal bands might have been negative. Just thinking about how that could be another red herring if they had come back as positive, it still wouldn't have been diagnostically that useful. No, that's a good practical point, isn't it? Primary progressive MS can be uh, really challenging. Uh, and again, I knew we're only seeing a few views of the imaging, but certainly in figure one in panel A, uh, there's a lot of change really, isn't there, in that lower, um, in the medulla and uh, upper cord, which just isn't something we we would commonly see in that way, that sort of confluence, I think, with with uh, primary progressive MS, although you know there are, uh, there are a range of cases and it is a difficult diagnosis. Okay, well, thanks, Sinew. That that was a really uh, interesting, challenging case, very much led by uh, the advances and, and ease of genetic testing that we have now. So let's go to the next case, which uh, Ruth has for us, and this is in the test yourself bracket, uh, and so it, it's laid out in a way that we can talk our way through and uh, and see uh, what the clinical reasoning is. So, Ruth, take it from the uh, start, please. Thanks. So this is a case of progressive cognitive impairment and gait difficulty in a patient with schizophrenia and it's from a group at based at Kettering General Hospital. And the case is that of a 59-year-old lady who presented with a two-month history of progressive confusion and cognitive impairment and gait difficulty. And this was on a background of very long-standing schizophrenia which had been diagnosed for 20 years. 
She was taking a few medications, so olanzapine and risperidone and geloxetine, um, but these had been ongoing for a while and she hadn't had any recent changes in the doses. Okay, so on that sort of history, two months uh, of apparent dramatic change, really, uh, it's really wide open, isn't it, on the the causes of that? So uh, we're, we're really very keen to know what the examination findings were. So what, what was uh, happening at that stage? So when they examined her, she was mute and she had um, symmetrical cogwheel rigidity, mild bradykinesia, axial rigidity and a broad-based unsteady gait. She also had a tendency to fall backwards. But importantly, she didn't have a tremor, uh, no pyramidal signs, no sensory signs and no cerebellar signs. And they also found she was mildly pyrexial. She had a temperature of 38 degrees and they noted some intermittent tachycardia and tachypnea and an elevated blood pressure. Yeah, so uh, that uh, that caught my eye, really, the mild pyrexia in someone who is taking psychoactive medication and rigidity uh, and a fairly short history here. So what would be the uh, the key test, which we're told just next, is is normal? Well, they tested the creatinine kinase. I hope that's the one you're talking about. <laughs> yes, definitely. And that was mildly elevated. Yeah, and I think this, t- just tell us about uh, so-called neuroleptic malignant syndrome, although importantly, uh, it, it can be related to uh, to uh, non-neuroleptic, so certainly sudden withdrawal of L-DOPA. And I think I, uh, I've written up a case in the past and seen others of uh, sudden baclofen withdrawal and I- I- even possibly amitriptyline suddenly, but that's pretty rare. So... Uh, yeah, tell us um, uh, just the sort of key facts there, uh, Ruth, on on that syndrome. So it's a potential complication of taking antipsychotic medication and and also the other situations you've described. And she's taking second generation antipsychotics, olanzapine and risperidone. So it's slightly less likely than with first generation antipsychotics, but still definitely possible. And people would usually present with uh, features like an altered mental state. They might have an elevated temperature, some autonomic instability. And on neurological examination, I think the key finding would be what's described as lead pipe rigidity, um, which would differentiate it from serotonin syndrome, which can have some overlapping features. Obviously, if it's not treated and it becomes advanced, it can lead to um, coma and be life-threatening. So it's important to pick it up pretty quickly. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, so that was uh, ruled out. I think uh, any mild elevation where we, we'd often see uh, CKs in the tens of thousands, actually, with um, good going and neuroleptic malignant syndrome. So they then uh, went on to do some uh, basic uh, early investigations, didn't they? And what did they show? So she had some blood tests which showed normal full blood count, normal inflammatory markers, so ruling out a systemic infection that might be causing things, normal thyroid function, um, and they noticed her calcium was mildly elevated, as was her creatine kinase, but not seriously. She did have an acute kidney injury, which they said was probably secondary to some dehydration. And then uh, after that, we're told about her brain imaging. She had a CT scan of her head and an MRI scan of her brain, which showed prominent ventricles, and they said she had a narrow, narrow colossal angles. Yeah, just tell us what that means. So that would be, that's a proposed marker of normal pressure hydrocephalus. So they're measuring the um, colossal angle on a um, coronal section. Um, and I think it's really to just differentiate between loss of brain tissue as a result of things like atrophy, injury, 
vascular disturbance um, from normal pressure hydrocephalus. So the angle will be smaller in normal pressure hydrocephalus. I guess here, though, I mean, we may discuss a case of neuro normal pressure hydrocephalus in the future, and it's obviously a difficult uh, condition uh, to, to to diagnose, and and then some controversy still on the best management. But this is just just to be clear, the the time course here is just too short, isn't it? There's too much going on. Um, obviously, important to make sure there's not an obstructive hydrocephalus, and 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 that's excluded. But I suppose it's useful to know that, uh, that there may be um, disproportionate change in the ventricles for the for the general atrophy of the brain. That, that's important in someone who's had a chronic uh, schizophrenia. Uh, but it hasn't really given us a strong clue as to the diagnosis. And they did an EEG as well, didn't they? And that uh, that was unrevealing as well. So, um, Sinew, in these sorts of cases, we've got an early sort of uh, negative on the imaging. Uh, there's a lot going on in terms of a confusional state and uh, gait problems. So what's uh, the next step for you? Thanks. Yes, um, I'd be very keen on getting CSF um, tested and perhaps looking uh, more systemically as well. OK, so Ruth, uh, tell us what the CSF showed. So the CSF had a normal opening pressure um, with a slightly elevated protein, 1.57 grams per litre, elevated lactate at 2.8 millimoles per litre, um, a low glucose at 2.3 millimoles per litre compared to a plasma level of 5.53. And then there were elevated white cells, so 16 of 100% of which were lymphocytes. So it's a classic uh, MRCP grey case, isn't it? You've got a few lymphocytes, the glucose is sort of tantalisingly a little bit reduced, but not, you know, I think with the glucose, it, when it's completely unequivocally low, and certainly if it's undetectable, there's quite a narrow differential for that. And and we certainly think about malignancy. We we always think about TB because of the sort of activated lymphocytes. It's, a, it's always struck me it must be uh, must be a, simple, a myth, really, that uh, people always assume that um, in bacterial meningitis the glucose is low because the bacteria are consuming it. But, of course, it makes no sense because the time we see the glucose at its lowest is when there's no bacteria, it's when there's malignant cells and in TB. So I assume it's the activated hungry lymphocytes and the hungry polymorphs um, with bacterial infection that are causing the, the reduction in the glucose. We do see it, see that in sarcoid, low glucose, but it's it's not massively low here, is it? It's a little bit on the edge uh, of uh, of normal um, or acceptable normal range. It's definitely very high protein, though. Lactate will sort of park for now, but what do you think of Ruth when you when you see raised lactates? Do you find that helpful in the CSF? It's not something. I've used clinically that much, actually, but I suppose I would think of infection with an elevated lactate. I think that's right. I think it's too non-specific here. I mean, we, we often come back to it if, if if we're ever suspecting mitochondrial disorders, but there's, there's a lot going on here, isn't there? And uh, before we're going to start going uh, down that rabbit hole, and uh, but, you know, we, we might park that for now, really, but there's, there's other systemic reasons that might be raised. We uh, We did get some general medical things, didn't we? So what did the uh, chest x-ray show? So the chest x-ray showed bilateral hyalur lymphadenopathy. The authors write that their differential for that was sarcoid lymphoma or infections such as TB. And this, I think, prompted them then to get a CT scan of the chest, abdomen and pelvis with contrast to provide a bit more detail. 
and that confirmed that there were enlarged axillary and mediastinal lymph nodes and also some intrapulmonary nodules in both lower lobes of the lungs. And they also noticed bilateral adrenal enlargement as well. Okay, so we've got some uh, potential targets for biopsy. I think it's worth us saying at this stage that they had considered things like NMDA uh, encephalitis. I think that would have been uh, a perfectly reasonable differential here to consider. And we obviously have a very low threshold for for considering that, but um, that was negative. So I think it's reasonable now on the information that we've got that they go on to to try and get some tissue. Uh, and that's exactly what they did. So what did the biopsy of the um, axillary and mediastinal lymph node show? So they found non-caseating granuloma um, with abundant collagen deposition, uh, and they concluded this was suggestive of sarcoidosis. They also conducted an endobronchial ultrasound, which um, visualised septated lymph nodes, which can also occur with sarcoid. I think they cultured the tissue as well. TB culture um, and staining for fungal disease from the lungs was negative, and the histology for lymphoma was negative as well. So I think it's really important at this point in the case to just sort of say where we, we would all be, really, because I, I think... Uh, particularly actually that the patient presented mute because I have seen that before in, in neurosarcoid uh, although I'm sure I'm certain it's not uh, specific for it but it definitely was something that uh, made me think of that and we've got bilateral hyaluronephalopathy we've got a compatible CSF we've now got a, a pretty um, barn door biopsy findings including this septated lymph nodes so yeah I mean for me there is nothing to stop me thinking that this is neuropsychosis at this stage. Of course, there'll always be anxiety about TB, but I think, you know, you've done as much as you can here, uh, and I would be getting straight on with treatment for sarcoidosis. Is there any spoilers for either of you that, that you might have just paused at this stage? I think it seemed quite reasonable to me reading it through, especially in the context of a mildly elevated calcium. And they've also they also report the I know it's controversial, but they did a CSF ACE, which was elevated. I mean, that's probably a whole other discussion about whether that should be taken into consideration. But the overall picture seemed quite convincing for sarcoid at this stage. I think you're right. I mean, you know, ACE is one of those things. We know it has a very, very poor sensitivity. Uh, so it's always reported if it fits with what you thought. But I would have been quite happy to have still called it sarcoid if the ACE had been normal. But yes, happily, it's playing the game here and it's read the textbook and it was slightly raised. Okay, so they went on to treat with uh, standard intravenous methylprednisolone uh, for five days. And what was the course uh, of the patient then, Ruth? Well, they then reveal that the initial CSF actually tested positive for cryptococcus, which we weren't told at the beginning of the case. Um, and they give us the results of a repeated CSF which actually showed that the white cell count had increased. So 50% uh, lymphocytes, 50% neutrophils, but a cell count of 49, whereas previously it was 16. Um, and much of the rest of the uh, lumbar puncture was, uh, CSF result was the same, although the protein had come down a bit. It's not actually clear whether they started treating for cryptococcal meningitis at the same time as starting steroids or not from the way that the cases presented. And what do you make of the fact that the CSF pressure was normal? Because I, I suppose I always sort of expected to see that 
raised and sometimes it was always described as uh, the sort of CSF pressure where it comes over the top of the manometer um, because it's so high. Um, but, I mean, it, clearly it's difficult to ignore the positive uh, antigen. But um, what, what have you learned from, from your reading about uh, CSF pressure? Yes, so um, some of the recommended reading at the end of this article um, I found very useful, actually, and it, it was saying uh, that in HIV-associated cryptococcal meningitis, the um, CSF uh, opening pressure is usually very high, and that can occur in cryptococcal meningitis where there's no HIV, um, but it's much less common to have a, a raised pressure in the non-HIV cryptococcal meningitis cases. Management of raised CSF pressure, though, is really, really important in determining mortality and managing the disease well. So they do suggest if it is raised that patients will need repeated lumbar punctures, draining very large volumes of CSF, up to 30 mils at a time. And actually, in some severe cases, if the pressure is really poorly controlled, things like a, a lumbar drain on a neurosurgical unit might actually be, be required. But in this case, it looks like it wasn't needed. And then just to confuse matters even further, I believe you can also get a raised opening pressure with sarcoid itself. So it's not necessarily a differentiating feature. No, and they, they go through all the the features, really, uh, and, and how they might fit or be seen or have been described in cases of uh, uh, cryptococcosis. And that includes um, the, well, I think the CSF, we can accept that that uh, would certainly be compatible certainly when it develops uh, a mixed picture with neutrophils which wasn't seen initially and rising cell count I think again that uh, would be something um, that was a bit unexpected really but they also say that uh, it um, it can cause lymphadenopathy so tell us about that Ruth. Yes yeah, so um, cryptococcal infection can cause uh, granuloma um, as well as sarcoid. So it, it can cause um, changes in the lungs, lymphadenopathy as well. But they authors say that it's much less likely to cause the adrenal changes that were seen in this case, uh, which was one of the reasons they believed that the two diagnoses coexisted, um, because they didn't think that cryptococcal infection could explain all aspects of the presentation. And is there a sense that cryptococcal infections can be a little bit more chronic? I mean, this is a good few weeks that the patient was getting worse it's, so it's it's fairly subacute isn't it it's difficult to call it chronic um uh, and arguably one might say that um it was a bit too fast for sarcoidosis but then we don't really get a sense of whether the patient had any malaise for some time before um so they started her on antifungals and uh what did they give her and how long for so the treatment um, depends on whether the patient tests positive for HIV or not, and she was HIV negative. And so they start with a, this induction regimen. So they gave her um, IV amphotericin and flucytosine for six weeks, and that was guided by microbiology advice. And uh, she, I believe she carried on on steroids at the same time. Steroids, of course, increasing the risk of cryptococcal meningitis. So I think it was a little bit of a balancing act between treating the sarcoid and treating the uh, cryptococcal disease. And then after that, she had to have some consolidation with high-dose fluconazole, and she remained on maintenance fluconazole for a year, during which they monitored her bloods and her CD4 count, which they'd found to be low, again, presumably putting her at increased risk of this kind of opportunistic infection. Uh, and, and for a while, there was an interest, wasn't there, in diagnosing sarcoidosis from the 
change in the ratio of CD4 to CD8, I recall, didn't wasn't that the basis of the Kavim test, which no one ever does anymore? Didn't it used to put some sort of guinea pig extract under the skin? I mean, I could be, I could be misremembering this, but and I think then when you look, you looked at it later, there was a sort of alteration in the the, the CD4, CD8 levels, but it's not reliable. But I suppose again, that, that might just fit a bit more with sarcoidosis than than the cryptococcus. But I mean, they're concluding that these things are there together. Uh, I mean, obviously. Ockham might be uncomfortable with this, but I think there is strong evidence, certainly, for the cryptococcal infection. Well, un- unimpeachable evidence, really. So the right thing to uh, to get on and treat that. But do we have a sense whether the patient got better simply as a result of the antifungals? Do we get any long-term follow-up information, Ruth? Yes, yeah, so I think at follow-up, which from memory was around a year later, the patient had improved. Um, her extra pyramidal uh, features had improved too, but they'd stopped her risperidone um, and her cognition had improved, but she was still on a low dose of steroids and had had prolonged antifungals. So it's hard to really know what to attribute the improvement to. I did wonder about her extrapyramidal features. I couldn't really see much in the literature about neurosarcoid or cryptococcus being responsible for that. So I thought that probably was more likely to be a side effect of her medications that which had sort of decompensated somewhat with her other illnesses but I don't know if you have any thoughts about that well I I, no, I think you're absolutely right I think we, we we often see people with these very long histories of uh, schizophrenia in particular but but with exposure to old-fashioned but also second generation neuroleptics and and the question is uh, have they got Parkinson's that's what we're often asked isn't it and it's actually one of the particular values of the dopamine transporter scan actually in this setting uh, that can be very helpful in helping you understand drug related versus uh, idiopathic parkinsons so yeah I, I feel comfortable to sort of park that really as as, as a, a a sort of separate issue um, it doesn't fit with with anything else here sinew anything that you had to add to uh, to this difficult challenging case I just thought it was a very interesting case. These two rare diagnoses, which, as I've learned now, can co-occur, sometimes presenting and being diagnosed together. And there is this cell-mediated immunodeficiency through CD4 lymphopenia with sarcoidosis, which was a really good learning point, as it really does put individuals at risk of opportunistic infections, such as cryptococcus. Um, So, yeah, very, very interesting case indeed. So, well, two excellent cases, and thanks, Ruth, for uh, for going through that one. I was at the ABN yesterday, the Association of British Gemologists meeting, which was an excellent autumn meeting, and I was lucky enough to run into one of the editors of Practical Neurology, who was with one of our loyal listeners who tells me that he regularly listens to these case reports while he's mowing his lawn. So I love the idea of people going about their regular lives listening to uh, our discussions so i hope uh, you've enjoyed these two as well and uh, we'll be back in uh, a couple of months time with uh, some more case discussions for you at home listening please leave us a rating or review if you've got any comments or you think the ways we could improve this or any of the other practical neurology podcasts and if you have the chance do listen to one of the other podcasts uh, on this or past issue you can get them all on Spotify, on Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, and thanks for listening, and uh, look forward to uh, to the next time. Bye bye.